0: Heavenly Father, uh, as you did at Pentecost so many years ago, here again today, uh, send your Holy Spirit amongst us um, so that we might uh, be drawn to Jesus in our everyday life, Lord, and help us to understand uh, what that could look like in this crooked generation. These things for the sake of... Him, Jesus Christ our Lord, whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, so, uh, welcome back if you've been coming. Uh, if you haven't been coming, that's totally fine. Um, each of these lessons should make sense on their own. Um, we're, this is a six part series. This is the third of six um, on uh, Christianity in you know, a post Christian age. And today we're going to talk about equipping believers for everyday life uh, we have a guest today chris copeland who comes to advent um, uh, at the five o'clock service um, uh, so not usually around in the morning but so glad you decided to join us today uh, he thinks a lot about this and has been for a while and so we thought it'd be a great conversation partner to bring chris in but uh, just a sort of recap of things before we get started and talking to him about everyday life and one thing we'll really bring into that is vocation or work although we can uh, think about uh, equipping believers for everyday life beyond just work Um, though that's often a place where we spend a lot of our time whether that's our uh, vocations or advocations Um, and the last uh, two lessons. The first one, we really wanted to strike home the idea that we do indeed live in a post-Christian age. And I think that, that just saying that in, in the South is really strange for people. Um, but uh, I just wrote an adventure cover letter and brought this up again. Um, Will, did I say this last time? Will Willimon, um, who has been a Lenten preacher here before, said he knew that the South, he, he grew up in Greenville, South Carolina. He knew that the South was no longer Christendom on a Sunday in 1963 in Greenville, South Carolina, when the Fox Theater started playing movies on Sunday, uh, that the city of Greenville no longer was going to tow the party line for the church. Um, that they were more interested in the economics, which makes sense, right? Um, and so that's not just to be an alarmist, but just to say, this is the reality of the situation, that uh, Christendom is the idea that we live in a, a predominantly Christianized society uh, or, and or it might be actually enforced by a state government like it has been in places in Europe in the past. And that's behind us actually, that we're more influenced by other uh, things in our society than the Christian narrative is the thing that Brandon brought in for us that uh, in modernity and post uh, modernity um, we've we've lost the narrative of uh, Christian theology that um, that's no longer the the guiding story of our lives. There are so many other guiding stories that often influence the the choices we make and what our identity is, even those of us who are in the church. And then the uh, other thing I'm adding to that, all this idea is what does that mean for us in the church is that we have to think like missionaries now. We have to think like people who do live in a foreign country. Actually, that book that Willimon wrote with Stanley Hauerwas and other Uh, theologian uh, where he talked about that story of Greenville, South Carolina. Their their book is called Resident Aliens and they wrote this in 1990. They're both from the South. Uh, Hauerwas is from Texas, Uh, Willimon's from South Carolina and uh, they said we have to realize that we are resident aliens. (laughs) We're foreigners in, in a strange land even in a place like the United States. Um, And the thing I talked about last time was uh, contextualization. And part of that, speaking the native language of the people, just like on Pentecost, they were able to speak uh, miraculously the uh, foreign tongues, the languages of other people in the audience so that people could understand the gospel. We too have to understand what are the the native languages, quote unquote, of the people around us so that we can uh, communicate that message in a language that they'll understand. Um, and part of that, which we'll talk about today, is just what does that mean for our everyday life? Um, that it's in actually the context for missionaries where uh, the gospel is spread is through the informal interactions often uh, with people uh, in their everyday life. Um, and so to the, 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 the reaction often of people living in a post-Christian age, um, if you're a Christian, is either to escape... And become sectarian and sort of live a sort of new monastic kind of life or to blend in sort of not identify outwardly as a Christian Um, and uh, I think it's um, somewhere else that we need to be where we need to to not escape entirely um, although there are probably some things we might want to avoid and we don't want to merely blend in because we'll just go in the background and then the next generation will turn around and say, why aren't our kids Christians? Well, because we never shared the faith with them or showed them how we could. Um, and so I bring into you again today a scripture passage, which is the end of the uh, chapter two that that we um, have in church today, but we don't have this bit. After the Pentecost sermon, Peter's preaching to the Jews, to the Jews, Not to the Gentiles, to the Jews. He's preaching to fellow uh, 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 Jews uh, this message, and this is the reaction once they become Christians. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. It's easy to read this passage and get a vision of that first mistake that I said where the Christians and the post Christian society would would escape. Um, actually what you see is them sharing their lives together. And that very thing was what often bore witness to the Gentiles and to the Jews. Uh, We want some of what you all have. What is going on here that that you seem to be so generous and full of joy um, in in your sharing of life together? Uh, And that is often, that was often the platform in the earliest church for for bearing witness. uh, And it's Often a platform uh, in, in foreign places like in Asia and Africa and the Middle East, where missionaries are living, um, is, is is that sort of witness. Any other thing to add, Brandon, before we have a discussion with Chris on sort of well, summing things, things up?
1: Word.
0: Well, just or sure, if you want to help us transition into that um, topic. Uh,
1: yeah, I think I just want to underscore: who are we as the church? What what does it mean for us to be the church? Well, the church is the particular community of people that gathers around the news of the gospel. right? We're the community of people who gather around the gospel. And Matt and I, we want the Advent to be so captivated by a vision, uh, by a theological vision that because the God of Israel has raised Jesus from the dead, because Jesus now lives to triumph, well, we need to now unpack all the implications of what that means. Well, now... Husbands love your wives, children honor your parents. I'm quoting from Ephesians here, but it also means go out and seek the common good, do your work well, right? It has implications for all of life. Jesus is now the Lord over all of creation. That's the theology of the New Testament after Jesus has been raised, right? So, because Jesus now lives to triumph, all of life, we need to think Christianly about all of life. Um, and I think Matt and I, in, in being captivated by that theological vision, we hope it looks as simple as if you're in the 9 o'clock service or the 11 o'clock service and you uh, see a newcomer, um, you know, meet them, talk to them, get lunch with them. It might mean you start a friendship and get coffee and maybe they express to you that they're checking out this Christianity thing, right? They're new to the faith or or. They're, they're having doubts about Christianity well what would it look like if you as a Christian began to meet with them and share with them the faith and disciple them right this is just organic relational ministry or maybe it's meeting your neighbor or maybe it's going into Taco Mama um, in Mountain Brook and um, striking up a conversation with someone like I did randomly um, <laughs> who told me he was a Buddhist the guy behind the counter um and uh sadly sadly we don't have a good I, I think it's good for us to just admit we in the we as the church don't have a good reputation I was actually sitting at um I won't say which coffee shop or the name of the person but I was sitting at a coffee shop in the fall in downtown um and I've become friends with this barista and uh I was sitting there on a Sunday afternoon and he looked at me as it was getting busy and said, Brandon, so he's not a Christian. He said, Brandon, if God's so good, then why are Christians the worst? And I can tell you, but we, we as Christians, we need to be prepared for that. And we actually should own up to it and say, yeah, you're right. Because I can tell you as a former Apple retail employee, Sunday, <laughs> Sunday afternoons were the worst. Christians were the worst, the rudest <laughs> of people. I'm not doing it. It's good. And I think it's healthy for us to say that um, and to own up to that. And if the, the gospel of grace actually frees us to say, like Paul, I am the foremost of sinners. Um, and in a post-Christian age, we need to own up to that and, and be pioneers of civility. So, so we want to have organic, relational ministry throughout the city with our neighbors, um, with our co-workers, with our family, um, with people coming into the church, and that translates into um, into uh, into integrating our Christian faith with with our work. Um, before Chris, I want you to say a couple things. Um, but I wrote this quote up on the board. It's a it's a legal formula. So. Um, we have inherited—I don't know if we realize this. It says, "As if God did not exist" by Hugo Grotius. Um, as if God did not exist, we've inherited uh, a way of viewing the world that we don't—that we take for granted. Um, we have a, a dualistic framework often between the secular over here and the sacred over here, so we can easily treat the sacred as you know our Sunday time or as our Bible study time of the week. And the rest of the time is the secular time, um, which is kind of the neutral space, right? And we've inherited this legal formula. This, is, this guy was a Dutch um, legal scholar, I believe in the 1600s. Um, and he, he coined this and suggested that uh, international law use this way of thinking to formulate laws. So we need to treat law as if God did not exist. It needs to be functionally atheist. So we can put religion over on the side, right? So And we function that way. Because we go to work, quote, as if God did not exist, and we work in a secular way, but then over here on the side, we have our private religion, right? And then we, and this gets teased out in, you know, I might be having a conversation with you and you might say, well, well to me, you know, my, my religion is private to me. It's my inner personal thing, right? Um, so, so God and religion and Jesus and Christianity and whatever else becomes the inner private world for me, and then the public world is secular, quote as if God did not exist. Um, and and you know it's a lot more nuanced than that. But I wanted to bring that to light that we have this dualistic framework. And uh, so I wanted Chris to say a lot about that because Chris's thought about um, about dualism. So. So Chris did, did you introduce who Chris was? You said no, he was I a, said a little
0: bit, you come from Alabama. He goes to yeah. the five o'clock service, you might not know him. Um, but you want to introduce yourself and uh, sure. and uh, yeah. you're from here and you lived in know. New York City and tell us about what happened in New York.
2: Um, originally from Birmingham grew up, graduated Home of High School, uh, went to Auburn, um, but still pulled for Alabama because my parents went there. So there's been <laughs> in my life. Um, I went to grad school for education at NYU in 2000 um, and then moved back. I was a high school teacher at Vestavia High School for 10 years, during which time I met my wife. Um, she decided to go back to school to get a PhD in social work, so we went back to New York for me uh, in 2010. Uh, we're there for five years and then as of 2015 and now back in uh, Birmingham and she's a professor of social work at Stanford, which is why we moved back. Um, While in New York, I think that you were referring to, we uh, we weren't officially members, but we went to Redeemer Presbyterian Church. Mm -hmm. And in 2012-13, I went through a fellowship program called the Gotham Fellowship, which was kind of about the integration of faith and work. Um, And it was uh, worldview-changing for me. And then two years later, my wife got to go through the fellowship. Um, And so we had thought a lot about integration of faith and work because the theology that we learned there And the personal experience we went through really, uh, it just transformed the way we see the world. Um, Especially for me, having grown up in the Southern evangelical culture, my wife is from uh, the Midwest, like Ohio, Pennsylvania. Um, So she wasn't as steeped in the evangelical culture as I was growing up. Um, So for me, it was very um, changing to go through and hear some of this theology that just made so much sense. so, so d- can you characterize like what
0: how that uh, paradigm shifted for you? How much time do we have? Well, yeah, I mean, no, just you know, give your five minute first yeah. sort feel of yeah. on that.
1: And before you uh, say like that, can give a before and an after. So describe like the dualism that you saw growing mm-hmm. up, and then describe what what impacted had on you for changing that.
2: Um, growing up, so Brandon talks about the sacred and the secular, and I grew up with that mindset, but not so much as like. I wouldn't have thought that someone that worked in banking was like doing secular work necessarily. I kind of thought of it as uh, the music we were listening to and the movies we would go see. So you're not supposed to listen to secular music. Um, I was Every Christmas, I would get uh, the latest Christian rock band CD and liked some of it, but always felt guilty for listening to Pearl Jam or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, And so that was kind of the sacred secular, but I definitely had a conception of there were things that are spiritual that are more worthy than the things that are um, secular, which kind of were less worthy on the hierarchy. And it led to a lot of struggle in deciding a career. Um, Namely, I was an English major, uh, and so there was a couple routes you could go with that. I thought about teaching, I thought about law, um, and ultimately chose teaching because it seemed like it served a greater good. It seems like it was doing more God's work than some of the other options. Uh, But even choosing teaching as a profession, I still struggle with, shouldn't I be a missionary? Because that's really what's important. Um, Going out and doing God's work means saving souls. So the sacred secular kind of dualism that I grew up in uh, really put the emphasis on personal salvation. Um, And I was raised with this belief that heaven was uh, this otherworldly plane where we would go be like angels, you know, like we were going to be disembodied souls floating on the clouds. Um, And that didn't make sense with the creed we were saying in church every Sunday. We say the Apostle Creed where we would say, I believe in the resurrection of the body, and I never stopped to think about why the resurrection of the body would have been something that mattered if we were then going to go back to being some disembodied soul. Um, And I never thought about it. None of this was explicitly taught. Um, we weren't uh, taught this in Sunday school. It just was kind of in the in the air, uh, in the culture. I feel like that's even just in pop culture too. I
0: mean, mm-hmm. you know, in the language of like even secular film mm-hmm. industry, that's the vision you get to have.
2: Are you so? Yeah, right. you get crazy. Uh, I remember a movie. I don't know if any of y'all saw "Defending Your Life." Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Meryl Streep was in it, but it's they're up in heaven and they're like on a bus that's gonna decide which way they go, you know, and it's, it's a bad movie, don't, yeah, <laughs> um, But it was, it was this kinda like, you're, you're gonna be, you know, angels in heaven, essentially. Um, and, but then there was like some concrete things mixed in because we believed we were gonna get a house. And so it's like if you were good enough on earth, your house was gonna be nicer and bigger. Your mansion. The mansion, yeah. 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 Um, what changed in New York uh, in this fellowship was uh, essentially kind of a belief in what the sovereignty of God means because I would have said that God is sovereign. Uh, and again, this kind of goes back to it not being explicitly called. I would have said God was sovereign. I don't think I understood what that meant because I, I, never, uh, I never considered whether God cared about economics or politics. I cared about politics in so much as the politicians were Christians. Um, And so that tended to direct the way that my family voted and the way that I I, I was raised to vote. But I didn't think God cared about politics itself or finance. Um, uh, But we were challenged to think through this fellowship, if God is sovereign, then he's sovereign over everything. If God created everything, then that means everything is from God, even politics, even finance, even economics all of these secular professions that Brandon was saying that we we would consider secular professions. And so it was a challenge to kind of think through what are the implications if God not only cares about economics, uh, if God created uh, the earth and the cosmos with the possibility of economics developing out of it, what does that mean about the people that go to work as economists? Um, So I think back to uh, my last year at Auburn, my roommate And one of my best friends, he was getting his MBA, and I was getting my English major. And we had a lot of uh, discussions, and he really struggled with what am I going to do with my MBA that's good and that serves the kingdom. And so the conversations tended to go with what he could do with his money that would be good or charitable, that would devote uh, devote his money to charitable causes. They never centered on what the purpose of business was and how his actual work in business could be. Of what Not God just matters, the, end, right? but the, Not well. the end, but the means as well. Not the end, but the means. So the fellowship really helped us focus on this idea of God's sovereign over everything, then the means matter uh, mm. as much as the ends. And actually the means and the ends are intimately tied up with one another.
0: Can you think of, um, I don't know, I mean that's an example, but maybe an example from your life as a teacher, of how that, what's the implication of this sort of worldview shift?
2: Uh, t- yeah, I feel like I got off a little easy as a teacher because it's easy to justify that as kind of a missional-oriented um, position. I did have a conversation in my first year. I had a student, um, uh, a young man who identified as gay, and uh, I developed a good teacher-student relationship with him. And I had a friend who would I would talk about it with, and uh, this friend would say, "Well, are you gonna are you gonna preach the gospel to him?" Are you going to tell them about Jesus and all of this stuff? And I was like, well, I, I, don't, I don't think so. I don't, I don't know that that's my job. And she said, well, you, you really should because you have the truth and you know the truth. And how can you stand up there and teach everything knowing that you have students that don't have the truth? And so I struggled, like, how to respond to that. But it occurred to me that if the role was flipped, if I had a student in school and there was a non-Christian teacher pushing their beliefs on that student, that I wouldn't be happy with that as a parent. So then removing the, the Christian part out of it and my role as a teacher, I had to think about what what is my role as a teacher? If I'm not here to evangelize students, then what am I really here to do? And I had to think about um, what the goal of education is, what the, what the purposes are. Um, also, like, what what is God's design for education? Um, because really, if it's just to evangelize, then why do we need schools? Hmm. Um, why why does I mean, mathematics and science and why does all of this stuff matter if we're really just meant to evangelize? So I think that would be an example from, mm-hmm. from my career. But I will say I've struggled less because it was always easy to think about teaching as um, doing God's work because you're helping young students flourish. Um, so
0: how does a person on Wall Street have put this into... That, right. I mean you was, lived in New York, I'm sure yeah. some of
2: the people who went through
0: Gotham work in Wall
2: Street, right? Yeah, a lot of them did and they really they really struggled with it um, and the conversations again, it was a lot of, um, A, what can I do with the money that I earn, uh, B, what good is my firm doing? I had a good friend who was a trader of a hedge fund and um, it was a really charitable-minded hedge fund. They did donate a lot of their profits as a firm uh, to good causes, they were involved in um, you know, a lot of social causes, and that was the justification for for him. Um, but it was kind of a, a half-hearted justification. It wasn't quite satisfying to him to think that that's all that his work work was worth. Um, but there is, a, if you believe that there is a design that God is over finance, and there is a design for it um, that can help His creation flourish, then the work itself that he was doing, trading, you know. I don't know the terminology necessarily. Trading whatever you would trade day to day, that that matters as well. Um, yeah. It's not just the, the end to the means.
0: You know, what would you say to somebody in just any sort of kind of normal nine to five uh, sort of white collar job, maybe a lawyer, um, someone in business banking, someone who works downtown Birmingham, for example, or um, you know one of the office parks over the mountain. Uh, devoted Christian maybe in this room um, who uh, wants to start thinking about what does this mean for them and their career and the immediate response usually is you know going to evangelism through explicit Mm -hmm. means or starting a Bible study in the break room Um, how would you respond to that idea
2: Um, I think it goes back to the dualism that. Brandon mentioned that instead of conceiving of things, as uh, there's a sacred bucket uh, where some of my life is put in that bucket, and That's church, devotions, Bible studies, things like that, in the secular bucket. Um, and I don't know if this is the theologian that pioneered this idea, but where I read it, I uh, was a theologian named Al Walters. Um, I think he's in Canada. He wrote a book called Creation Regained. Um, and he wrote about how the true divide is not between the sacred and the secular, between uh, being in harmony with God's design and in conflict with God's design, and that that line between those two things, being in harmony and conflict, cuts through all of life. It cuts through um, our work, our relationships, our church, and that it's even possible for the things that we put in the the sacred bucket, like church, it's possible that some churches are actually operating in conflict with God's design. Mm. Uh, So instead of thinking sacred-secular, think conflict harmony um, and if that cuts through all of life, then it doesn't matter if you're working in law, it doesn't matter if you're a trader on Wall Street, that is your work contributing to the flourishing of creation um, by operating within God's design for what finance was supposed to be, or his design for what law was supposed to be. Or even for, for me as a teacher, what his design for education is meant to be.
0: And I would say, like, imagining if more and more of us did that, as I said at the beginning, we might not have to be as anxious about particular programmatic means of evangelism. That people are naturally going to say, you know, um, I, I want to get to know you better, or I want to be in relationship with you. And over lunch, like if you drop the the hints about your Christianity, wouldn't you say that that will open up the possibility?
2: I, I think it could. I sometimes wonder. Um, how much more it would open up the possibilities if you're just knocking it out of the ballpark at work. Like being exceptional at what you do. Being exceptional at what you do, because if you're operating according to God's design, you're not only doing your work well, you're considering uh, justice, you're considering the welfare of your coworkers, and if you're doing an exceedingly great job while also showing that you care about them and their work, and doing your work in a way that helps their work flourish. As whole humans. Yeah, exactly. But not just spirits. No, and not just in right. yeah, as, Christians, yeah, as Christians or potential Christians. Um, I tend to think that that might draw them more to you, mm. um, and just in general. And
0: uh, you know, I'm also really curious about what this means outside of work as well. I'm sure you can make the mental gymnastics to things mm-hmm. like, uh, like I said, your advocations in life, uh, whatever it is you volunteer with, or the sports that you're involved with, or for someone like you who's having a baby in October, right, October, mm-hmm. you know, what does that mean as a parent? Um, uh, uh, or other relationships that we have as, uh, as friends and family members? Before we open up to discussion, do you have any quick thought on that?
2: Yeah, I think that I just uh, finished doing uh, a freelance job for the Denver Institute for Faith and Work. It's an online course on work and theology, or a theology of work. Um, and I really struggled because I kept writing, you know, in your job or at work, um, and I realized that it was coming across as as this theology of faith and work and integrating faith and work applies to professions. Um, but I think it really applies to all work uh, so there, definitely in october there's going to be a lot of work <laughs> raising a child um, i just spent the entire uh, weekend with my dad uh, resodding our backyard um that's work um your hobbies everything is work so it's not just profession um it's all all work that we can do in the broadest sense i think that this applies to and if you think about all work in terms of uh, am i doing this in uh, harmony with what god intended for this part of life or in conflict. And that's another thing because God has a, I, I think God has a different design uh, for business than he does for, for teaching. I don't think schools should be run like businesses. I don't think um, businesses necessarily need to be run like families. I don't think families definitely don't need to operate like businesses. And there are principles for each area of your life. So as long as you're thinking through, you know, what was God's design or what is his design for the life of the family and then how can I achieve that uh, through my work, or what was his desire for education, or architecture, or banking, or even ministry? Being a minister, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, I'd love to open it
0: up to, we have 10 minutes to discussion. As I said, I really want to make sure we have some open form discussion. That's been my favorite part of these classes. Any uh, responses to what we're talking about here, or questions? Something else we'd love for Chris to unpack? Yeah.
3: There was an English minister who was chaplain to the Queen in the 1950s. He had gone to Oxford and wound up in World War I, right behind the line, running a place for soldiers to recuperate a little bit. And after, he, after the war ended, he started an organization called Top H, which spread around the world. And in essence, his motto was, Christian service to others is the rent we pay for our room on earth. That went great guns for 15 to 20 years, and I think it gradually died out. I worked with an algorithm group one summer in England, 1950, with that man. And he could go from the schoolhouse geometry's house where he'd spend the night to dinner with somebody on some Supreme Court or other. And they were all the same. Uh, he was the same with all the people. He didn't change himself. And that kind of organization worked with the question the
0: my mind is, why did it eventually fizzle out over the whole world? No, uh, so I don't know question? enough about that organization
3: to answer that. But, uh, but from a right. general Christian point of view, when people get together uh, sparked
2: by Christianity mm-hmm. and try to do things for other people, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Sure. Any responses yeah. to that? Um, yeah, I don't know enough about the, the organization. Um, in the big picture, though, I would I would wonder just about what what are the designs for the work? Uh, what kind of sphere are you working in? Uh, what are God's designs for that? And maybe when it gets too far away from that, um, because yeah, I tend to think just hearing the story, if He's helping a soldier behind the battlefield, sometimes I think that that's actually probably a lot more beneficial than walking through the ranks with the Bible, like tending to physical wounds of the body, hmm. versus preaching is probably more beneficial to to, uh, to these people. I know if I were wounded, I would rather have someone heal my, my wounds than, you yeah.
3: know. One keep thing about we did is he had a friend named Group Captain Cheshire, who an RAF age, mm-hmm. and he was motivated by contact with this English minister so that, so that he could use his fame, as it were, and he started a home for incurable people who didn't have family. It was a happy party. Everybody was dying or in the process of dying, but somehow or other there was a happy spirit through it. And you can say, how do you bring that about, that kind of thing about here? It was you know, obviously Christian and motivated by Christ, but it had a great secular effect. Okay. Okay. Yeah.
0: I, you know, I love the thought that you gave of the janitor being on equal footing in this man's eyes as someone in Parliament or the Queen, even know um, that before God in Christ um, it's an even playing field that's really difficult I think for us to do we treat people in hierarchies Our our society is stratified whether we like it or not Um, and uh, you know what would it be like to give the person um, a very low means maybe homeless um, As much attention and generosity in your life as your boss (laughs) who you're trying to impress, you know. Um, uh, I I, I find that personally difficult, and convicted sometimes when when I don't, you know, and I give particular people a short trip at the cash register when checking out or something, you know, Um, because again, the my. Even uh, as someone who's inundated in Christianity as a minister, I'm still affected by societal paradigms and will be for the rest of my life, sometimes even more so than the biblical paradigms. Um, And it's a constant um, struggle. But in a society that is dominated by social stratification and hierarchy and and things like greed and um, climbing ladders, I think we stand out when we no longer or we try to less and less play that game. Uh, And people will say, I wish I had that kind of, you know, know, not to care uh, what kind of clothes I'm wearing or car I drive or or what type of person this is that I'm going to associate with, um, what kind of car they drive or house they live in or what zip code it is, Um, uh, I'm going to give them the time of day that they deserve.
2: I think it's kind of like a heart uh, issue, which was also a huge part of the fellowship that I went through. We did a lot with just the, what is the human heart um, in the Christian sense. And uh, it's Augustine, St. Augustine, who wrote, Um Our Hearts, uh, are, hearts are, restless. are Restless Until They Rest in You, Lord. Um, and I think that the gentleman you're talking about that uh, was Christian but had secular ramifications, if, if your heart's at rest in God, then you're going to be able to do that, do your work in a way that um, just attracts everybody. And if your heart's not at rest in God, then you're going to be seeking your work or your ministry or anything that you do to validate you. Um, and that might be why an organization can grow and then go off the rails. But it sounds like that person, you know, as you were describing, it it reminded me a little bit of Mother Teresa. Just well,
0: it's, it's different people. to love people than to use them, Yeah. right? Uh, any other thoughts, yes, Sandy? Matt,
1: what about the um, the importance of prayer in all this? I know I would leave a class like this and feel pressure at being inept, maybe in a yeah. situation, and the the importance of you know saying Holy Spirit, help me know what to say to this person when I walk in here. That it won't be the wrong thing, or you know, just him to be... because we're we're all
3: going to fail in yeah. trying this, but hopefully. Through prayer and the Holy Spirit,
0: we can get to that point. Yeah, I mean, this came up the, uh, at least the first session, but I think the last time too. I think the last time I said you're not used to your Advent clergy saying this, but I do think we need to read our Bibles and pray, <laughs> uh, because you just you're not going to have a Christian worldview without that, are you? Uh, I I just I don't know how. <laughs> I I commend reading your Bibles and praying, <laughs> and with each other, you know that helps too. Um, I think that it's easier for me to love someone versus to use them when I'm praying for them. Um, so I've also heard one
3: of the best prayers you can pray is simply, "Lord, help me." Yeah, yeah
0: sure. Yeah, when you're at, when you're <laughs> walking through the room, that's a that's a good
1: short one. <laughs> yeah, and this is, I want to say like this isn't a strategy where we're articulating, right? We're saying the gospel says something about all of life. Now go be the creatures we were made to be and created to be to serve our neighbors. Um, The gospel reorients our identity, not that we're using others to climb the ladder of corporate America, um, but actually it might mean when I go to my workplace or whatever, I see the person as a human made in the image of God, and I think about what this decision will mean for the community and for my coworkers, right? Um, I mean, there are all sorts of things there but it reorients our whole outlook on life because we're not using people we're serving them and our jobs are now to, to serve others I think I saw a hand over here yeah. right, yeah. what about those businesses who profess to be a Christian business but by their business practices and the way they treat their employees it is quite obvious they're not how do you come back when they say, "Well, this
0: is how Christians do business," I don't want to be a Christian. I don't I have a ton of experience with that, though. I do see plumbers around town with Jesus fishes and stuff like that. I think you'll only see that in a society that still thinks it's in Christendom. Uh, because if we're in, uh, if we're clear about the fact that we're in the minority, actually, we realize that's not a, it, It's not an effective kind of tactic to just. Put a Jesus fish on the back of your truck and think that that's going to be helpful marketing. Sometimes, um, you know, that might be an example. Sometimes, those are examples of places that seem actually out of harmony um, with uh, the Christian message. I'm not. I don't want to paint broad strokes uh, because sometimes people like that have great business practices. But I don't think simply, you know, putting a Bible verse on your Stationary is going to make your business Christian. <laughs> do you have any reactions?
2: Um, yeah, I think just thinking through that, what, what were we designed to be as humans in relation to work, um, and and how that, you know, what does God want for us? Ultimately, He wants uh, you know, Micah, do justly, right, do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. So we we know that like justice is a huge part of this. Um, so if you're doing engaging in business practices that are Um, that are unjust or that are contributing in some ways to some aspect of creation not flourishing, then you're not operating in accordance with God's design for what your business should be. And it doesn't matter if you go to church and tithe the the profits from the business. Um, But I think when you have that sacred, secular uh, worldview and there's a divide between the two, it's easy to not think about, not have to think about, what are the business practices doing? Because I'm doing everything right on the sacred side of things by going to church, tithing, and all of that. So I don't really have to think about this over uh, in this side. Um, But if you think about it from the other viewpoint, then uh, it's just a little bit more off. You do have to think about your business practices and the ramifications of them across the board.
0: You know, another thing, just one final thought, is that um, this redeems uh, non-believers' work as well, wouldn't you say? Mm-hmm. And God, you see this, especially in the Old Testament, with um, uh, you know people like Nebuchadnezzar. God can use non-believers outside of the covenant community to do his work. Um, and uh, when it comes to a plumber, like, I want a plumber who's going to fix my pipes. <laughs> if, if the Christian plumber is not good, I'm not going to hire him. You know? I mean, and I just, it's the same sort of thing. I want uh, an Apple computer because I, I think they operate better than than uh, the Microsoft platforms. You know, I just uh, um, I, and so uh, in my eyes, like I'm going to buy the good product. Uh, and maybe there are Christians involved in that company, maybe there aren't. Um, but uh, having this sort of uh, vision that God is sovereign over everything, uh, sort of you see that God can be at work and even. Um, the the places where uh, Christianity hasn't taken a foothold just yet. I guarantee
2: you nobody has ever asked their plumber to design a more Christian water delivery system for their house (laughs) than their neighbor at. It would be living water. (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
0: Well, well next time, uh, I think we're going to talk about uh, counterculture for the for the I common think so. good,
1: society, right? and
0: this really does pick up on what we're talking about. We're going to talk about creating a, a, counter, a Christian counterculture for the common good or something like that. Uh, we'll go in peace.